Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're on the third and final Dark Knight movie. Uh-huh. The Dark Knight Rises from 2012. Yes. We're eight years on from the previous film, mm. Dark Knight. After Harvey Dent's death mm. and the lie that uh, Gary Oldman and Batman keeps to themselves, Commissioner Gordon and Batman keeps to themselves, the Dent laws, or the Dent Act has been put into place. Police have been given sweeping new powers to put prisoners away, and organised crime is pretty much gone from Gotham. It's peacetime. Everything's alright. And Batman has disappeared. He's not been seen since the night that Harvey Dent died. Neither has Bruce Wayne, really. He's become a recluse. He's Howard using it up in his house. Mm. But uh, <laughs> Howard using it up. <laughs> <laughs> but events conspire to bring him back. There's uh, a huge guy on the loose called Bane, played by Tom Hardy. We can play our game of uh, Spot the American in this again because some cast members have been added. And a couple are American, uh, but uh, a couple are also, again, from this side of the pond. And... This is the film that made me believe that Tom Hardy was about six foot four. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago you told me he's like five foot seven or something. Maybe not quite that short. Or maybe not quite that short, but five I saw. Him, I saw. I actually saw him at Cineworld. He was there for the premiere of Peaky Blinders. No, it oh. was it was the film that he did about driving all night. By oh, Lock. They did Lock. a premiere for that. Didn't yes, they, they did. Oh, right. Well, it uh, was by Stephen Knight. So. And actually, the pictures of him at the premiere are. As you go up the escalator in Cineworld, you can see him there. Yeah. So, uh, and he was very, sh- you know, he was very sh- short. I'm, I'm very short, and I thought he was very short. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I had seen him in things before this. Bronson was before this, I think. But again, he's physically imposing in that, and there's, there's a lot of shooting him from below makes him look bigger. Yes. That's happening a lot with Bane here. Yes. Um, and you very, very seldom get a full body shot of him, mm. you know, or a kind of long enough take to, to, to get a real sense of his size. So there's camera trickery being employed, clever camera angles. He looks massive and he's, he's physically brilliant. imposing. And the thing about Bane, I was always, isn't Bane supposed to be the better of Batman, the superior of Batman in every possible way? He's smarter, he's stronger. He's the guy who, in one of the comics and in this film, breaks the bat, right? He breaks his back and beats him. Mm. And that's kind of what's supposed to be I always thought so kind of intimidating about him and he is but the twist here sort of destroys that doesn't it because yes I mean uh, you know this is my favorite of all of these films and the only one that I was really you know engaged with uh, throughout Um, a lot of it does have to do with how wonderful I think Tom Hardy is as Bane but actually that's not true I mean I think the film is populated with great actors, actually, from really small parts. Mm. You know, I recognize William Devane. Uh, you know, Ben Mendelsohn is in it. I mean, uh, uh, you know... Joseph uh, Gordon-Levitt, Matthew Modine. Matthew Modine, yes. Mm. Uh, also, uh, what's his name? The Irish actor Returns. Yeah, he's been in all three of them. Killian Murphy. To, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, who's wonderful to see. Also, uh, what's his name, who was in uh, Queer as Folk and then also latterly in The Game of Thrones? Yeah, I don't know his name, but... I love him. He's the um, guy right at the start, the CIA guy. That's right, yeah. right? I mean, these are tiny roles played by tremendous actors, right, who clearly all want to work uh, with Nolan. 
Uh, so I think it's a film that is incredibly well cast. Aidan Gillen. A- yeah, Aidan Gillen. Fabulous. Uh, so, yeah, I loved watching. I, I, Anne Hathaway is one of those people who, you know, I think she's a real movie star. She's so charismatic and, and, she, and she's often brilliant. But she always has moments where it just goes off, right? Where you just think it's the wrong choice, right? You know. Well, how do you mean? In here, in this film? Yes. Okay. Uh, she always does that. But what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say the opposite. I'm trying to say what a pleasure it is to watch her. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> kind of even, yeah, if she occasionally... Yeah. Yeah, she be, I think the right... I wonder what you think those wrong choices are here, though. That moment where she talks to Batman and she gets all sentimental and teary-eyed. Where she says, you don't owe these people anymore, you've given them enough. She, she begins to, like, just well up and tear up and she's telegraphing... You know, every emotion at like a hundred miles an hour. Well, actually, you can't imagine Selena Kyle doing that. She'd be ironic and, yeah, cool. Like, she's been throughout the rest of the film, right? Mm. You know, and kind of have attitudes. So, I think, whereas, you know, I mean, she's a very facile actress, so she can, you know, shift from one emotion to the other. But her tendency is always to sentimentalize, right? And I Mm. think it's kind of off. Okay, that's not what I thought about that moment, I must say. I mean, that, that moment to me spoke of... Throughout this film, Selena Kyle, Catwoman, has a connection to the lower class in the city. She's part of it, and she's part of the criminal class. I mean, it's, kind of, it's petty criminal criminality. She's not an organised criminal. But, you know, when she gets to know Bruce Wayne through stealing his stuff initially, um, you know, he's obviously a, a super billionaire. And... There, she's she's always making comments about how his half lives, and when he loses everything, he gets to keep his house. And she says, even the rich don't go poor like the rest of us. Sure. And there's this thing, there's something happening in that part when you know she, by this point she knows he's Batman and and all the rest of it, and he's come back, and she's saying, you know, you give me your bat bike, I'll do the thing he said, I'll blow up the, the tunnel, and then I'm leaving, I'm gone, and you should too. And she has no sentimentality for this place, and. You know, it, it's it's not just... She does have that ironic coolness going on in so much of the film, but there is something beneath it. I mean, Batman's constantly telling her, there's more to you than this. I think and a, less, a less sentimental actress or a better director would have conveyed her emotion without her going so full-on about it. And I think it's her weakness as an actress. I didn't feel it was full-on, but actually I'm not normally one who defends Anne Hathaway, and I think this is by far the best performance I think I've seen her give. It's a very enjoyable performance, and she looks fantastic. And actually, and when she's being ironic and cool, and you know, in action, she's very good. I love how she moves in this. There's a point right at the start when she's playing the maid, uh, and Bruce Wayne discovers her, and she's trying to be, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be here. And then he says, No, you've broken into my safe. It's uncrackable. And she, uh, her shoulders move, and her head moves, and her eyes change. She goes, No one told me it was uncrackable. You know, she turns into the seductive. And I was thinking about um, the Batman Returns Michelle Pfeiffer version. Oh yes, you know where I said she moves. She she moves incredibly. And Michelle Pfeiffer is the performance of this role, frankly. But you know, we were talking about Michelle Pfeiffer in relation to the showiness of the casting of those earlier films that you mm. felt these films lack, and um, you know, showy casting is. Sort of one thing, another thing. It's about performance, and her performance here is in movement. So it's it's in the way that she transforms from playing the part into being who Catwoman really is, and then she kicks his cane away, 
and she does this move. She slides on her heels and puts her hands on her hips and then jumps up to the window and like it's 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 timed perfectly and it's precise and she is in control and stylish. Well, I don't want to overdo it because the thing is, I really like her and I agree with you. Yeah, yeah it's kind of you know she's very enjoyable to watch and it's actually you know. This is an all-star film that is not publicized as such. Mm. And it's a pleasure to watch the stars. But I actually disagree with aspects of what you're saying. Because, for example, my first thought when I saw her as the maid, where she was wearing those eight-inch platform heels, mm. right? And you realize she doesn't know how to walk in them. Like, she, you know, actually her movement, as she was going up the set, was very clumsy. Right. right. So, but I, I agree with what you're saying. Later on, she's very elegant in her movements and so on. But the thing is that the, the you know mm. there are these little spots where you're aware, yeah, that the editors are betraying her. Like you know you could have cut that moment, you could have filmed it better. It's, it's just a moment of awkwardness, right? Right. Uh, and certainly, I think you know that uh, initial parting with Batman, where you know I think it's like overdone. I think it's over sentimentalized. Uh, and you could have, you know, done the feeling much more elegantly and also much more in keeping with a character who's meant to be somebody who survived the gutters of uh, uh, Gotham. You know, I think it's too easy a giveaway and too full on and so on. Mm. So I think kind of, you know, there, there are those moments. Think, for example, in contrast, you know, to Bane, right? Um, you know, and his parting with the Mor uh, uh, um, Cotillard character right you know it's just a tear and you see it through the corner of the eye and yet all the feeling is evoked right I so. didn't feel much feeling was, I saw his tear I didn't feel it maybe I, maybe I need people to shout at me <laughs> yes but, <laughs> maybe you do <laughs> but you know, that, but, you know that, that point that we're talking about where Anne Hathaway's on the bike um, that is an emotional moment because that's the first moment in the film I think that you really get the sense that he might die because that's when he says I haven't given them everything not mm. yet and you know that's when you start to think, are they going to kill Batman? You know, and the film is kind of leads you up to that, and they're constantly talking about the autopilot on his plane not working, which means that he, when it gets to the point where he's got the bomb, he has to fly it out there, and it looks like he kills himself. And then at the end, it gives you that moment of no, he hasn't. You know, mm. that's and you can talk all you like about is it like the end of Inception where you don't know? You know, is it a dream that that? Um, that no, no, Alfred you know, in, the film doesn't signal that. The film signals clearly that people love to think about that. Though people did, people did question that. They're like, "Oh, is it meant to be?" Yeah. yeah well, you know, you can take your makeup. You could also say, "Well, it's happening in another dimension." I mean, you could make anything up that you want, but yeah. you know, in the terms of the film, he it's, survives, and yeah. you know, and so on. Makes a life with uh, with Selena Kyle, and Alfred is pleased. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the, you know, but but uh, that that point is an emotional point, and I think it's. I mean, I didn't. I I didn't feel. I'd have to go back and watch it again. I I didn't feel that. And Hathaway was mugging it or overdoing it or no, no. But, well, um, you see, I think you're misinterpreting me because I think for like nineteen. No, I'm only talking about that moment. Oh I'm yeah, no, I think that moment is over. I'm only talking about that moment, so I'd have uh, to go back and watch it again. I didn't feel it basically from her in that moment. Mm. Maybe we just were on different Reacting levels. differently, yeah. Um, let's um. Yes, let's be more systematic because actually this is the one film of these that I mean I don't think it's perfect still. But that I unreservedly like, yeah. That I was with it, yeah, for, for all of the film actually. Uh, that I enjoyed it. Um, 
and that I thought was inventive. I thought the opening sequence was wonderful. It was like a Mission Impossible mm. kind of you know sequence and very exciting to see. Um, and kind of completely energized by the Bane character, actually, you know, who just from the beginning, the way he talks and the way he moves, and you know, it's completely entrancing that character. Um, and it's as original a version of that character as as Heath Ledger's Joker was, I think. Oh you know, yes, pe- I think so. People were looking for, you know, what's the version going to be? Well, I mean, my view really is that, you know, in terms of these, um, you know, uh, uh, charismatic performances yesterday's from the Heath Ledger film Heath Ledger's was the only one really whereas actually this film is peopled by a whole series of performances like that Mm. Uh, who was the young uh, girl in uh, Killer Joe Juno Temple yeah because she plays Selena Kyle's sidekick here Mm -hmm. right and it's just a tiny role right you know but even in those tiny roles people like that really bring something yeah you know Uh, and the film is full of you know, star casting in all of these tiny roles, and it pays off. Yeah, you appreciate them. They bring something to the party. You know? And it's not just the casting, it's also the setting up of the characters. The film has a wider scope of characters than yes. the previous two have, and you get more of a sense of how people in this city live. Yes, um, and the, the set pieces are better. You know, like, I, I think it's got really memorable ones, you know. And this is not the action, because I, I still have you know, the same problems with the filming of the action as I've had for the other two. But I'm talking more of the conceptualization of the set pieces, right? So, you know, the first one, which is very Mission Impossible, you know, and then the one of getting out of the prison. Mm. Uh, so I really, you know, I thought those things were, like, very imaginative. It's such a great idea, although the climb itself, actually, I still don't buy. I didn't buy it then, I don't buy it now, because... Well, you're not showing it very well. You're not showing it very well. And the, and the final jump that everyone misses is an easy jump, right? People can make it from a standing start, and there's room for a run-up. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like, just, just on a practical level, I don't buy it. I go, well, try harder. Also, there isn't the logic of a, you know, if a 12-year-old girl could do it, why can't a much taller adult do it? Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, there are logical kind of inconsistencies, and there are thematic... Um, elements that are not very well tied together or worked through in this film. It feels like a hodgepodge of ideas. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, the film is clearly connecting with you know the uh, events in Wall Street in 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole sector of the film where that um, gets reflected. Um, and there's a whole theme under it as well of, of inequality. There's a whole theme of, it, of inequality, but very very poorly thought through so you know it is drawing on all of these elements of the french revolution and robespierre and Mm. the kangaroo courts and Mm -hmm. you know the rich kind of being punished and you know but actually you you think for most for most of the film i thought again you know that there are these like almost fascist tendencies that the film wittingly or unwittingly is kind of conveying because you know if you think of Bane as the poor person born in the gutter who hasn't seen daylight in 30 years Mm -hmm. and who's a real underclass person and you're still meant to side with you know billionaire Bruce Wayne yeah there's something just off about that right like um Bane is definitely put forward as he has the shape of a revolutionary figure 
yeah. you know, standing on top of the, the cop car, shooting down the prison walls, getting the prisoners out, saying, this is your city, you live how you like. I know, but he's represented you know. as conveying a reign of terror. Exactly. You know, so again, it's like this underclass person and so on is bad. He brings chaos and terror and death and disaster. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, so that's a very weird thing. And then, of course, the film recovers it a little bit, you know, by spoilers if there's still anyone you know listening who will find this a spoiler but when the film shifts the onus from her to marion cotillard from him to marion from him to marion cotillard all of that changes because you know she is the daughter of ras al ghul in some ways you know she is the daughter of power as well as bruce wayne is mm. you know so 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 the film makes kind of like an interesting uh homology there between Bruce Wayne, Selena Kyle, and the uh, uh, Marion Cotillard character, and um, Bane. Yeah, mm. I one high, one low. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean to be Russell Gould's daughter is to but be then, somebody. But then the f- yeah, well, kind of. But then the film says this: he was, he became someone, but he was a mercenary. That's yeah. yeah but then he became Russell Gould. Became Russell Gould. <laughs> um, but the thing about Bane is, like I said at the start about the, about the twist. The twist being that. This woman is not whatever her name was. She's Talia Al Ghul, and she yes. is a real mastermind. Um, it means that the story that you've been told the whole way through about this child that was born in prison, Ra's Al Ghul's child, born in prison and climbed out, is her. It's not Bane. You actually yeah. then don't really get any background for Bane. What you get is Bane was obviously older than her because when you, you, you do see him demasked in a flashback briefly in that prison, so and he's. Tom Hardy. Yeah, but he's a very young-looking Tom Hardy. Is he young? But he's, you know, 20-something, right? He's older than she is. She's a tiny little kid. So he, for whatever reason, became her protector and then was beaten to fuck. You don't really know why. There's just a brawl, which is when she escapes. And when she comes back, he's been disfigured, and that's why he's got the mask. Um... But where he comes from, you know, you don't know if he was born there. He never climbed out. That's not his story. He's really no one. And that's what I was saying earlier about the twist, sort of devaluing everything I thought I knew about Bane, because I was bringing that to the film. Like, oh, this is the ultimate villain. This is the one who's supposed to have beaten the bat. Mm. And he does. But then you're left with no actual reason of why is he so great? How did he beat the bat? How does he know who he is? Why is he so strong? That's actually completely blank after this is over, because mm. it wasn't him. Mm. Right, he, he is he is second in command. Well, the film is full of like inconsistencies like that, or things you know that don't feel complete. Of, yeah, um, yeah, and I think this is one of the reasons that when it came out, people, I think, well, dis- I mean, it, made, it still made a billion dollars, but I think people were disappointed, and I think some people felt like Christopher Nolan was phoning it in. Oh well, how could you? I think it's much better than any of the others. I think in terms of the story, because that's what people get attached to mm. ultimately, and. Um, there are, I think, more holes and inconsistencies in this than there are in the previous two films. And that's, I think, and there was a thing about, it has a certain, it has the thing about the bomb, um, which I think a lot of people commented on as being like in the 60s film, when he's literally running around with a big circular bomb and he says, some days you can't get rid of a bomb. And then at the end of this, theoretically serious film with the seriousness of purpose and theme, it ends with, Batman running around the city with a bomb. Well, I mean, first let's be clear. This whole thing about a seriousness of purpose and a theme, I I think watching all of these three films in a row recently, 
I mean, that sunk that idea because, you know, I think if that's what you're positing this film as, mm. it sinks. It doesn't hold up, you know, kind of. I don't think it's a serious film about serious ideas. I think it's one that has, like, ambitions, but actually it doesn't match its ambitions. You know, if you think through the film of injustice or inequality in this film, it just doesn't hold up, you know? I mean... Well, it's not so much that it doesn't hold up, but what you're saying about the way these ideas come across as fascist, you know, has some truth to it. Maybe you actually end up going, Batman just kind of is a fascist. You know, I mean, isn't this why um, Alan Moore wrote Watchmen? You know, like, these kind of people who who put on masks and run around claiming that they're above the law and they know what's best for us, these are, you know, these are psychopaths. And these, if were this real life, these would be the problem. And the question, who watches The Watchmen? Who's in charge of Batman? Mm. You know, only himself. And ultimately, these characters are kind of fascist. People have said the same about Superman as well. Yeah, but I think... The okay, so, uh, um, you know, there, uh, let's leave that open, possibly. <laughs> you know, but certainly if... Um, Nolan is as great as a film artist as you know people claim him to be. He would have resolved a lot of these problems and these iterations, and he hasn't. Yeah, well, I think they're kind of not there to be resolved. Like, you know, they're there to basically either be indulged in or ignored. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, like I don't think, know, I think Tim thing... Burton's Batman's ignored them. Well, I I don't actually. I I think the thing you know to me, Tim Burton's Batman holds up to much greater scrutiny, yeah. you know, than, than these films, yes. Um, so I think it's, you know, and it does so in its bones. I mean, you know, just kind of like the, you know, the set design alone in Tim Burton's Batman, it kind of, you know, it's something that it's almost, it's not realistic, it's dreamlike, it's gothic, it's, you know, half last century, half next. Yeah, it's... it's, it's so, a, I mean, I'm not, we're not talking about the set design, we're talking about ideologically. Well, I'm, I'm saying kind of ideologically, Tim Burton's Batman doesn't feel fascist to me. And this... That's what I mean. Yeah. I, that's what I say. That's what I mean when I say this idea that actually maybe this is fundamentally fascist can either be indulged in or ignored. It, maybe it can't be fixed. So in ah. Tim Burton's, maybe it is just ignored. Well... You know? Maybe it's maybe, just glossed over. Maybe. And because it's um, so much more... Uh, th those are more fun films. Maybe. <laughs> but I, I still think that, you know, in this iteration, in this story kind of things could have been better worked through so that it leaves less room for doubt mm. as to what the film is doing. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, uh, uh, these kangaroo courts that really evoke the French Revolution, mm -hmm. you know, and focus only on the reign of terror, you know, and not on the fraternité, égalité, liberté that it also brought about. Yeah, there's an accent there which is, to me, a problematic one. Well, you do have the underground meetings of, of the cops who still keep the fight up. You know, I mean, actually, it's a meeting yeah, that I think is evocative of the, the kitchen meeting in the second film, which, you know, the Joker interrupts, the mob meeting. Now it's the police who've been driven underground. I know, but it's still the police. It's not the people, right? Yeah, yeah uh, that's true. So, um, and in the meantime, the period which is supposed to have been very good is also shown to be one in which people have been arrested without warrant and kept in jail for eight years without a hearing. Yes. Right? So that is also seen as kind of, uh, you know, very problematic. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a very confused film. It's a, I think those ideas are not worked out. 
mm. kind of well. I do agree. Um, I was unfair to the second film when I said, you know, that one's not about the battle for the soul of Gotham that the trilogy is about. You know, when I said the first and last are really about that because they're about the League of Shadows and Ra's al Ghul. Whereas the second one actually is full of that. As we said, we were talking about Harvey Dent is, is mm. the, the, the symbol of the soul of Gotham in that film and it's the fight for him mm. that is between Batman and the Joker. So actually the film that film is full of it. Here, again it's full of it and I think you feel it more through the people, through the reign of terror that the criminals bring. But then it actually is kind of limited. Like Ultimately the, the, the city goes through this kind of torture but to what end is not entirely clear. I mean, I think that with all of these films, uh, and it's something... I, I, I think we might have spoken about it before, where I was seeing the Super Bowl, you know, performance of... I, I Beyonce. Think it might have been Beyonce. You've mentioned it, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, you get these dance formations. It feels like an army that comes out, and, you know, all the movements are mechanical, and, you know... And so on. It, it, it feels really fascistic, actually. Mm. You know, um, and and I, you know, I kind of I take that as almost like a, a characteristic of this type of film. There is something wrong when you know you need formations of people in masses. You know, you need to destroy football stadiums with hundreds of thousands of people in it. You know, you you have Batman going through Gotham skyline, and it doesn't matter that you know he destroys the building, like nobody gets hurt. Yeah, but there's nobody blah. Mm. You know, uh, even you know when um, the atomic bomb gets detonated. You know, I was thinking one of <laughs> thinking of Nikki. You know, the poor fishes, right? <laughs> and, you know, and surely there must be like it's an environmental disaster. Uh, you know, there must have been like sailing boats or fishing boats mm. or, yeah, like, you know, people died and suffered and now the film glosses over all of that, right? It doesn't matter, mm. right? And I think there's just something wrong with that kind of wanton mass destruction in which nobody suffers. And I, I also thought that, uh, you know, at the end of the film where they're unveiling the statue, I mean... You know, this is a city that must be like Beirut is today, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I think the last thing on anyone's mind is to have a ceremony with a statue. I mean, I know that I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm focusing on, you know, I mean, the film is not meant to be realistic on that level. In some ways, it's wrong to look at it, you know, on that level. But I think that there's no payoff to mass destruction, yeah, mm. in terms of of suffering, of real loss, or. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, so I think to me this is a fault in the film because, I mean, the only time that I felt emotion, yeah, that I felt moved by any of anything that was happening, you can, you know, you can move an audience through in many ways, right? It, you can move them through injustice, mm. the recognition of injustice. You can move them through suffering, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, none of that is moving in any of this. I mean, uh, the only moment that I felt anything was, you know, in that evocation of love between Bane and the Cotillard character. Really? Yes. Man, I didn't I feel that. that. I mean, that, like that, that point of revelation, you know, raises all these questions about who the villain is supposed to be and, and mm -hmm. why was I worried about this Bane guy if he's just the lackey kind of thing. And it's also a long kind of drawn out bit of monologue that she has to explain, you know, there's a bit of exposition yes. there. Um, so... 
you know, maybe I get distracted by that. I don't feel it, but maybe I just wouldn't feel it anyway. Like I, I think it's kind of. I maybe I just think it's kind of silly. Okay. You know. Well, I maybe if I get moved by things, maybe I got moved when he said I haven't given them everything. I haven't. You know, not yet. Not everything. Not yet. Um, I, th- you know, I felt. I felt something when um, he gives Gordon the flare and lights up. Mm. The, the flaming symbol on the bridge and everyone knows mm. that he's back you know that has because ultimately the kind of um, central thing going on in this entire film is about rising you know uh, Dark Knight Rises and when they um, climb when, when people try and climb up the prison to get yes. out they all chant rise rise except not in English yes so, um, so, and there's so a lot of about, rising and falling in the film it's yeah true. and it goes back to the first film when when Thomas Wayne, his dad, says, why do we fall so we can get back up again? Mm. You know, which the film plays yes. a little bit of. So it, it kind of ties in. And I guess that stuff feels earned. Mm. Um, um, unless you disagree that it's not earned. No, and, no. You know, uh, it, I mean, maybe, maybe you don't. Maybe it's kind of phony, you know. No, well, I mean, I, I saw all of those things and I knew that they were meant to have a response. I just didn't respond to it. Yeah. Uh, so, but I was thinking the larger th- aspects, right? For me, one of the things about Batman, essential to Batman, is his physical abilities, mm-hmm. yeah, what he can do with his body, right? You know, and uh, kind of in the comic books, is you know, he's learned every fighting system that there is, jiu-jitsu and karate and, you know, like, I, yeah, he's you know someone who can do amazing things with their body and then the other thing that's constantly highlighted is his intelligence Mm. right you know he is like a master detective he knows all of these things he thinks in ways that ordinary people don't because you know he's so highly intelligent and actually those are the two things that you do not see in this film right Mm. so so you know the other aspects which are Bruce Wayne's wealth and that he can buy technology and all of that stuff fine but, you know, so for example, you see that in Iron Man as well, right? He's, you know, super rich and can, has all this technology, but he's also super smart. And actually when mm-hmm. he doesn't have the technology, he can build it or, yeah. Um, whereas you never get that sense that Bruce Wayne, yeah. Is outthinking someone. Exactly, right? And, and actually I also think it's in keeping with this, you know, val- valorization of dumbness in American culture over the last 30, 40 years and the suspicion of intelligence and mm. culture and learning, right? Because that is central to the reason why Batman is Batman. He can outsmart you, mm. right? And actually, he can outsmart you in a fight, right? So, and this manifests itself in the film in various ways. I hate the costume, right? Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why I hate the costume is because it feels like armor, right? It doesn't allow you to see the body in movement. Now, you, you know, kind of, you can get an audience to buy a lot. You could have had something that allowed you to see the body in movement, but you could also say it's the super technology that deflects bullets. I mean, mm. yeah, uh, you don't need to have it as an armor. And actually, it being an armor means something, you mm. know, in itself. Yeah, it's a, it's a protective thing rather than an outward thing. Yeah, so, so I, hate, I hate the outfit. And I think it also goes contrary to one's expectations of Batman, yeah, which is to see physical grace and agility and, you know, and, and, and to see it, 
right? Where the, 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 that armored body prevents you from, from doing it. So I hate the design of all of that. I also hate the design of the Batmobile uh, uh, and all of that stuff. I think it feels military, right? Mm. Uh, well, which, that, I mean, that's the, that's the idea. I, I'm not saying you're wrong, but the idea is that it is developed for the military that he then uses. Yeah. So, like, it's given context within the film, but you may say, well, it's just wrong to conceptualise it that way to begin with. Well, no, but you could also conceptualise it that way and then not have the, you know, the Batmobile look like a tank. I mean, you know, in other iterations of Batman, you know, it's still like a lot of this technology is developed, you know, for the military or whatever. But actually, it doesn't mean that you need to put it in a tank. I mean, you could have put it in a sleek Lamborghini or something and, you know, have the same technology operate in it and have the, have the, the car do the same thing, right? The only bit of that that I liked was um, the uh, motorcycle, you know, that, mm. that re works itself, yeah, they put itself back together. Mm. I thought that was a neat kind of physical, uh, 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 special effect, yeah. I uh, must say, it feels like the, the objection to the tumbler of the car and to the suits, um, and I'm not saying you're wrong to object to them in the way that you are, but they do actually feel like fundamental objections to the um, the way the films are working. Like they, they are working in a mode which allows this stuff to be explained more plausibly or realistically than well, rather than explaining it away as this is the Batman thing that's enjoyable and this is a vague idea of how he got it. Well, you know? no, I think you could do both. Uh, but, but you're right in that this is a larger problem with the film because I think militarizing the costume and the Batmobile and all of these iconic things that you associate with the Batman mm. and which had heretofore not been militarized yeah, is in keeping with, you know, the films, you know, I'm sure that Christopher Nolan is a very progressive person and so on and I'm not sure how they thought this through. You know, but there are certain things in the film that kind of really evoke a kind of a fascist mm. yeah, aesthetic. And the militarizing of all of that is part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the idea that, you know, a bunch of lefties come in and destroy the stock market and mm. then rule, as you say, a reign of terror. And it's, and yeah. it's like, we need, we need the king of billionaires to come back and save and us. Save us. <laughs> yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So, but... Let's focus on the good things. So it's very entertaining. Um, and also I think that I think the lighting sometimes, has, you know, I, I, I don't know what this was shot on, you know, but well, the image... lot, a lot of it, 70 mil IMAX. Okay. And the rest of it, I think will have just been 70 mil regular or maybe 35. It looks gorgeous. Like the film, you know, has a real depth and texture and, it, mm. you know, kind of uh, uh, it captures the light beautifully. You know, so that I thought was like a great pleasure to watch. And I did think, you know, that the framing and the composition and so on were to me more interesting than yeah, mm. than they had been in the previous two films. Which is interesting considering that this is uh, the, a criticism that I made of the Dark Knight's compositions is that maybe they were, co maybe they were composed for IMAX and they look their best in full IMAX and when, when mm. uh, cropped down... They don't look so good. A lot more of this has been shot and composed for full-frame IMAX than was in The Dark Knight. Right. Much more. I mean, you can tell just... It, again, we saw this on IMAX Digital, not full IMAX, but you can tell from, from the crispness and sharpness of the image when it's IMAX and when it's not. Mm. And there's also a slight uh, change in aspect ratio, but not very much because it is a widescreen mm. screen we're looking at. But, um, but, I mean, you can tell. 
so I think you maybe would expect that problem more here. Yes, um, and you know, with the cropping, and I, I, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm just telling you my feeling on it. Yeah, yeah, is you know that it it seems uh, to me more visually interesting. There's there's a more interesting shot selection, but I think there are also more interesting setups to take advantage of. Oh, yes, I you know, I think that's one of the things, like 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 the player, the football player running across the field as the field disintegrates behind him. Okay, but I don't again, think there's anything quite that novel in the previous film. True. Whereas other things, for example, if you look at the scenes in, Sel- in Selena Kyle's apartment, right, you think, what amateur shot that? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, and that could be that the frame is cut and, you know, that we're only seeing half of it. Not or, in there. That wouldn't be IMAX. Well, yeah. No, it, I mean, it, I just, I'm, feels, I'm telling you. Okay. IMAX is there too. The thing about IMAX is you can't film dialogue on it because the cameras are prohibitively loud. So they're used for spectacle, the big action scenes, the, the establishing shots, things like that. Once you get people in dialogue, seldom is it IMAX because okay. you just you can't well, use it for that. I think those scenes are shot very unexcitingly. Yeah. You know. I said in a previous podcast, and maybe the Batman Begins one, that um, I felt over, over time Christopher Nolan's action direction has become more refined. And I think this film demonstrates it, although interestingly, I don't think Interstellar demonstrates it, which was two years later. Mm. You know, the fight between Matt Damon and Matthew Conaghy we talked about, we weren't impressed with at all. You know, one of the criticisms I had of that was saying, remember the, the fight in Game of Thrones yes. that's so brutal. This film has some feeling of brutality to it when it comes to Bane versus yeah. Batman, the, in those two scenes where they fist fight. And but actually... That's such an interesting comparison, the Game of Thrones one, right? Because mm. with the Game of Thrones, you're emotionally involved and you're surprised, right? And you're seeing it, on, or I'm seeing it on a small screen. Mm. And yet, you know, the action like affects you. I, did you not feel affected by the action here? No. Even that central scene where they fight in the sewers? No. I, I, I actually, I never felt that any of them were in real danger. And also, like I said, you know... All of that is being conveyed through the sound effects, right? Yes. You know, yeah, uh, and I think it's just not good enough. It's a lot of it through the sound effects, but in that, in that scene in the sewers, it is also through that framing, it's through that composition, that, that camera placement of below Bane and placing him in the centre of that room and in charge of everything. And the idea that he is monologuing while, you know, performing this. I mean, I mean the, the way that fight takes place, Batman is going at him and not not laying a finger on him, really. He smacks him in the face, no response. And Bane can stand there, take it, monologue, and then snatch him out of the darkness. It's very entertaining, I mean, but I didn't find it exciting or yeah. thrilling, or I didn't pull back, or, you know, it didn't affect me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So... Uh, it affected me. I like, you know, I mean, it's that, it's, that's where you go, this is, this is the guy who beats Batman. This is where he's broken. There's nothing this guy can do to beat him. You know, mm-hmm. he has been finished here I was thinking um, you know his armour is protecting him okay but then he, he does break his back so we and you get a crack but you know the kind of the armour could protect him I mean in fact it does was it not clear to you though that like Batman was had met his match here oh yes no, <laughs> he met his match but you know the, my thing is that you know if you watch some parkour in District 13 or something you really feel these bodies in danger, right? Mm. I mean, after all, you know, it's just a body. It's just bl- flesh and blood that you're carrying around with you. I, we're very vulnerable, 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, so kind of part of a, a fight scene is actually putting your body in danger. How can your body be in danger when it's encased in a tank? There's an element of that. That's uh, true. But then you know, uh, well, his body can be in danger when Bane starts bashing his helmet in the head so hard that it breaks. Well, that's you true. Know? <laughs> you know, so it's but it's kind of degrees of all of that stuff, yeah. right? I mean, I think a more exciting director or something, or more a better concept. You know, again, things that you often see in comic books is, you know, Batman somehow figures out, you know, the the way into Bane's weakness or something. It's through his, the gadget in his nose, which, you know, happens at the end. But again, that's not filmed very excitingly, right? It's almost like, yeah, you don't see Batman. Well, that is totally through the sound effect. When it, when it breaks, you yeah. hear it break and you hear it go, yeah. and you realize he's made... Yeah, well, uh, you know, in a better film, Batman would have figured that out and would have, you know, that would be Bane's yeah. kryptonite and, you know, he would have figured it out somehow, right? Whereas, you know... Well, I think this goes back to... Yeah, well, this does, certainly goes back to what you're saying about his intelligence, and you don't see his intelligence come through in this, and, you know, this essentially you go back to him not really being a detective in this very much. Mm. Um, the conceptualisation of Batman here, and what makes him him, I guess, is about spirit and soul. Like, that's where the film is concentrating. He, he has the spirit to get back to Gotham, to climb out of that hole... To, to re-engage his fear the guy explains yeah, to him yeah but you know, know beyond I mean he's also not had he's also been depressed for eight years that's how the whole of the film begins really you know so he's not somebody who picks himself up very quickly no like, but he does eventually well you know but Alfred, that's the... Alfred says you know you were gone for seven years and now you've been gone for another eight you know so yeah I'm just saying like that is the conception here like if you're saying well here's the problem this is why he's not Batman like that is this is at least what the film is trying to give you that it's it's about his bounce back ability. Yes. <laughs> you know, like that is this version of Batman, and you know, I kind of buy it. Like, well, it's taken him a lot of years to bounce back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I have a renewed appreciation of Michael Caine after watching this film. Because, oh, really? Yes, because I noticed how he is given. All of the building blocks of the story, I, you know, he does what supporting actors often do, which is, you know, the hero acts, and then, you know, the supporting actors fill in the blanks. Oh, yes, I went to the, you know, it's because you went to the shopping center at eight o'clock that the bomb was put at two o'clock in this, yeah, yeah, so they tell you all of the background story that enables the hero to act. And actually, Alfred is given masses of exposition, yeah, to mm-hmm. recount. And, and, you know, it, it takes a great actor like Michael Caine to make all of those reams of exposition even vaguely human or much less interesting. He is given a lot, to, and he's actually very sympathetic, and he cries. You know, we were saying before about um, people people crying non-stop, Matthew McConaughey crying non-stop, and you're like, ugh, crying. Michael, McCain, uh, Michael Caine's <laughs> thing about crying, about, you know, um, you fight the tears or whatever, but, like, that's... Yeah, he does that here. He fights the tears, yeah. but the tears come, and that's what's effective. He wants to not cry, but he does. Anyway, he's very good. Because he's lost three Waynes. Yeah, well. You trusted me, and I couldn't keep your boy safe. You didn't like that <laughs> bit? <laughs> so, you're really, you know, drawn to the cheap sentiment. I like when men cry. Well, I like when men cry. You know, but I also well, like... Not recently, you haven't. Well, I want those tears to be better earned. You don't think so? We've had three films of him looking after Bruce Wayne and he's fucked it up and no wonder he cries. Yeah, but you don't know anything about him, really. I mean, I noticed that there's a television series now about him. 
you know, these films, you know, the, uh, Alfred's only function is, you know, to serve Batman, right? You don't know anything about him or, you know, his wishes, his wants, his desires. I mean, actually, I think the comic book flushes, you know, things out over the years. But their know, relationship here is clearly deeper than that, though. They, you know, they're to get they're they're a partnership. I mean, he, yes, he is uh, an employee. No, but I'm not just talking about are, that. I'm saying his only function. He's not. He has no independent agency. You don't know what his wants or wishes or desires are. His, you know, he. So it's not a question of whether he loves Bruce Wayne or not. Of course he does, right? You're told he does. I hurt you from your first cry or whatever. We're told that. Yeah. But that he's got no independent existence beyond that. Well, he gets a hold every year. We see that here. He goes to yes. that restaurant instantly. <laughs> we know that. We know that. <laughs> you know? And, and we know that only so that he can meet Bruce Wayne at the end. But right? isn't it nice that he reconnects with Bruce, even if it is just with a nod, he reconnects with Bruce as an equal not as an employee because Bruce is officially dead now and yes. so they are friends now and nothing less well it's more, more than that it's meant to be a moment of fatherliness right mm. you know I'm glad my boy's okay and safe you know, yeah that's what it's meant to be so that's what it's meant to be <laughs> that's not what I felt no. <laughs> you didn't feel anything <clears throat> anyway mixed bag it's the one that I found the most entertaining uh, of, of all three of them uh, by a long way yes um, and you've just heard all of the other problems that we, yeah. <laughs> we have with it <laughs> which actually I didn't expect there to be so many I thought you know that I would uh, be agreeing with you about most of the things of you know I liked and then we would pick on a few problems and actually somehow the, what the conversation turned is you know we've, we've been much more focused on all the problems that each of us individually and together uh, the ones we disagree on and the ones that we agree on, you know, it's kind of much more than I expected, actually. The, the ultimate problem that I have with the film is that my problems with it are so minor. And actually, it fails to make me think about bigger ideas. I see, you know, the kind of construction of Bane as a kind of version of a left-wing revolutionary. Left-wing might be too far, but a revolutionary figure. But... It doesn't inspire me to think much more. I see the construction of Batman as this guy who's broken and needs to come back, but it doesn't inspire me to think much more. Well, I mean, I have a different problem with all of that because, you know, it's not that it inspires me to think much more. I just think that that is very badly handled, uh, you know, and with authoritarian tendencies mm. that uh, it, it seems to be unwittingly propagating. So, you know, I think those things are a mess. You know, it wants to bring up big ideas, but actually doesn't have the intelligence or even the craft to bring them all together, you know, into something that is coherent. Maybe the lesson of the Christopher Nolan realistic Batmans is that realistic Batman is horrible and fascist. <laughs> <laughs> and we should just, we should be happy yeah. with Joel Schumacher, you know, sort of shit Batman. Uh, well, <laughs> because he doesn't, know, he doesn't make us uh, uh, <laughs> worry. I, I am... I am a fan of the Tim Burtons, um, and I think they're better films uh, than this. I like Tim Burtons. Um, I don't like Joel Schumacher's. So, um, right, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>